All right, we'll take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 5. Well, looking back at the first four chapters, Paul began, if you remember, with a discussion about sin. Paul began talking about our depravity. In chapter 1, verse 18, Paul says, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all of the godlessness and the wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Just a few verses later, Paul says that God gave them over to the sinful desires of their hearts. If you've never heard that term before, God giving them over is simply to say God is going, if this is what you want, if you want to live your lives in sin and immorality, if you want me out of the picture, fine. It's like he says, I'm taking a hands-off approach, then, then, then go right ahead, okay? Matter of fact, there in chapter 1, it says it three times that God gave them over to their sin. Verse 24, it was dealing with sexual immorality. Verse 26, it was focusing on homosexuality. And then in verse 28, it talks about how simply mankind has just gone off the rails in debauchery. In chapter 2, Paul did not let up when it comes to this issue. He, he came out of the box talking about their hypocrisy. Right out of the chute, he says in verse 1, You, therefore, have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else. For at whatever point you judge the other, you are condemning yourself because you who pass judgment, you do the same things. Something for all of us to think about. You do the same things. Matter of fact, four verses later, in verse 5, he says, Because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. Now, just so you know, Paul is not focusing on any specific people group when he says this. He's talking about Jews and Gentiles in the church because both parties, if you will, were struggling with sin. But with that being said, there were some issues, for those of you who have been here in our study so far of, of Romans, there were some issues that just the Jews in the church at Rome we're dealing with. Now, were, were those issues due to theological confusion, or were some of them actually contemplating going back to Judaism? Well, we don't know the exact details. We don't know for sure, but probably both of them, based on what Paul has said, both of them are probably some of the issues that were going on. But either way, the answer is the same. Paul needed to take time out in his letter and to tell them the truth. And as you know, the Apostle Paul, he, he's pretty blunt. He just says straight up what they need to hear. And therefore, in chapter 2, starting in verse 25, Paul gets straight to the point when dealing with the issue of circumcision. You see, for the Jew, they were taught early on by the rabbis that if you're circumcised, you are heaven-bound. That's what they were taught. They were actually literally taught, and I've read some of these quotes to you, they were literally taught that Abraham guards the gates of hell and will not allow any circumcised Israelite to enter there. There are so many quotes out there from rabbis and some of the things these people were taught. 
But, but right here in chapter 2, verses 28 and 29, Paul says this. He says, A man is not a Jew if he is only one outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. He says, no, a man is a Jew, or if you will, he is a true Jew, if he is one inwardly. And circumcision is a circumcision of the heart. It is of the spirit. It is not by the written code. So as you can see, Paul, uh, Paul really took them to task on this issue. He was blunt. He was straightforward. Don't tell me just because of this, you're a Jew. You're heaven bound. That's not true. He just calls them out. That is not what circumcision is about. But with all of this sin that we started this book with, and certainly right there, uh, Paul telling the Jews that circumcision will not secure their eternal destiny, he finally comes to chapter 3 starting in verse 22, and he began to share that righteousness is still available to you. But he says that righteousness has nothing to do with works. It has nothing to do with the law, but it has everything to do with faith in Jesus Christ. I'm going to read a few verses there in chapter 3, starting in verse 21. He says, But now a righteousness from God apart from the law, has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. So just like that, after 64 verses of dealing with sin, he drops a, he, he drops a soteriological bombshell. Okay? He's saying that, that salvation, that justification is through Jesus Christ. We receive his righteousness. It is freely, he says, by his grace. In other words, it has nothing to do with works. Matter of fact, he tells us it was him, Christ, who redeemed us. He himself was the sacrifice. It was his blood that was shared. And so in that, just that short little section, he says salvation is by faith alone in Christ alone. Fully set them up. And so listen, folks, there was, there, was, there was no better news that Paul could have shared with them at this point. One issue, though, one issue. As a Jew himself, Paul knew that the Jews were going to struggle with this message of faith apart from works. And therefore, what Paul does, he's a smart man, he brings up one person that he knew they could all agree on, and that person was Abraham. And not only that, not only does he bring up Abraham, but he does so using the Jewish scriptures, which we know as the Old Testament. He uses their own scriptures to prove his point. Look at chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. Paul says, What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, discovered in this matter? 
This matter, by the way, was, was, was how to have a right relationship with God. What did Abraham think about that? Okay, He says in verse 2, if in fact Abraham was if in fact Abraham was justified by works he says that by the way because that's what the Jews believed if if that's true he's saying that means he had something to boast about but not before God and so it gets to verse 3 and he says what does the scriptures say greatest question by the way that any of us in this room can ask what does the scripture say Paul says let's not argue about it let's not debate it what does it say He goes straight to Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, and he says, Abraham believed God, and that belief was credited to him as righteousness. Did you catch that, folks? It says, Abraham believed God. God credited him with righteousness, not because of any works he had done, okay? But it was because of his faith. And listen, he's telling the Jews, it's your scriptures that tell us that, okay? It's in Genesis, the very first book of the Bible. The very first book of the Bible says salvation is by faith. It goes back as far as you want to go. Salvation has always been by faith. And if that wasn't enough, Paul even brings King David into the picture. As you know, uh, not just Abraham, but David was certainly a well-respected man if you were an Israelite, right? And so he brings him up as well there in chapter 4, verse 6. He says, David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the man to whom God, listen to what he says, to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed is the man whom God credits righteousness apart from works. What a statement. What a statement. Well, just when you think that taking that first section of Abraham and then going into talking about David, if you think that wasn't enough for these Jews to chew on there, Abraham says, I got one more. I'm going to bring Abraham back into the mix. Okay? Remember, folks, if he's going to convince the Jews of anything, man, there's no better way, no better person than using Abraham. Right? He's the greatest of all the patriarchs, if you were Jewish. And so in verses 9 through 12, Paul says, is this blessedness only for the circumcised? Or is it also for the uncircumcised? Some of us might look at that as just say Jew and Gentile. Paul says, we have been saying that Abraham's faith, in other words, not his circumcision, but we've been saying that his faith was credited to him as righteousness. Under what circumstances was it credited? Was it it?" After he was circumcised, or was it before? Did God credit Abraham to be righteous? Did he provide him righteousness before he was circumcised, or after? Well, we know what the Jews would think, but what does he say? He says it was not after, it was before. Verse 11, and he, meaning Abraham, received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. And so then he says, he is the father of all who believe but have not been circumcised. And he is also the father of the circumcised who not only were circumcised, but they walk in the footsteps of the faith of Abraham before he was circumcised. 
So by reading that, Paul here is using circumcision as a contrast to his main point, especially to these Jews at this point, saying that salvation, being justified, which means to be declared righteous, he says all of this is by faith alone. Circumcision, he's saying, did not make Abraham righteous. In other words, if you want to go back to Judaism, there's no benefit there. Circumcision didn't make him righteous. His faith did. Abraham, he's saying, was no different than a Gentile. And that's a hard statement if you're Jewish, right? Abraham was no different than a Gentile when he was declared righteous. What mattered is what verse 11 said, and that is Abraham is the father of all who believe. It's not a physical descendant talking about it. It's a spiritual descendant. Well, still keeping Abraham into this picture, I'm going to read verses 18 through 25 here in chapter 4. He says, against all hope, Abraham, in hope, believed, and so he became the father of many nations. Just as it has been said, so shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old, and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave God the glory, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. This is why it was credited to him as righteousness. The words, it was credited to him, Paul says, was written not just for him alone, but also for us, to whom God will credit righteousness, for us who believe in him, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was delivered over to death for our sins, and he was raised to life for our justification. You guys have heard me say a lot of times, our faith is only as good as the object in which it is placed, right? You can have all the faith in the world, but who's your faith in? That's what matters, right? And this is the exact same thing that Abraham believed and why his faith was never weakened. If you look back at verse 21, notice what it says. Abraham was fully persuaded that God had the power to do what he had promised, So it wasn't because of of all of this phenomenal faith. Abraham had such great faith. It was because of who his faith was in, folks. He knew that God had the ability to do what he said he would do. Okay, You can have all the faith in the world if you believe that, and it's in Muhammad or Buddha or anybody else. It's irrelevant but it's in Almighty God, and that's why his faith was never weakened. Because God God will fulfill his promise, because it's coming from God, you see. And then, of course, we finished that chapter last time by saying there in verse 24 that the very same principle, Paul says, applied to Abraham is no different for you and for me. He says, as we too are to place our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Our faith in Christ, he says, in him paying the price for our sins on that cross 
will also, will also be credited to us as righteousness. That's why he said that statement wasn't just for Abraham, but it applies to us as well. As I mentioned before, early on as we were studying, that God takes his righteousness and he gives it to us. We call that imputed righteousness. It's an amazing thing. God takes our sin, or if you will, Christ takes our sin and he gives us his righteousness. Well, what a trade that is, right? That is phenomenal. And so he says here that too, that righteousness will be credited to you and me who put our faith in Jesus Christ. Well, being that we've been out of Romans for about three weeks now, I decided to spend a little extra time there on the introduction. Um, as you know, it's important to me that we, our minds are always into the context of what we're talking about. So I did want to spend a little bit of time there this morning since I took off the last couple of weeks. But as we begin this morning in chapter 5, Paul is going to come off the last two verses of chapter 4. Okay, Those were verses 24 and 25. He's going to come off those two verses where he spoke of our justification and how through our faith, we too, right, can be credited with righteousness, okay? He's going to be coming off of that, okay? Now, with that now settled, Paul is now going to encourage the church. We haven't heard a lot of encouragement from Paul in the last four chapters. Been a lot of talking about our sin and our depravity, a lot going on. But now he's going to say the fact that we too are saved, given God's righteousness. He's going to be encouraging us, encouraging the church, and sharing the byproduct of that. What are the byproducts? What are the results of our salvation? How blessed we are because of our salvation. That's where he's going with this. Now, I'm going to read verses 1 through 5, but you know me. I'm not going to get through five verses with our time left anyway. But I am going to read verses 1 through 5. Starting in chapter 5, verse 1, he says, Therefore... That means it's coming right off of what we just mentioned. Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings, because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not disappoint us, because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit, whom he has given us. Now, before we look real quick into verse 1, let's just be reminded that most or many of the blessings that we Christians have are in the future. We have many today, don't get me wrong. But most of our blessings are in the future. You, you might think of the resurrected body, or a, you might say a glorified body. Many of us would like a glorified body. Mine's kind of falling apart at 57. <laughs> we would love that, right? We look forward to that. We think of being in the presence of God. We think of, we think of the eternal bliss in heaven and all these, these kinds of things for our future. But now, even though we're still on this earth, right, what does he say in verse 1? He says, right now, we have peace. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. One of the benefits is right now, even, before all that takes place, we have peace. Now, those words 
we have, I'm not trying to get too in-depth here, but those two words, we have, are what's called a present indicative in the Greek. An indicative is just simply a statement of fact. It's just saying this is a fact, okay? Being in the present tense is saying that we possess it now. It's ours right now, okay? So, so it's a fact right now, he's saying, we have, it is a present possession. We have right now peace with God through or because of Jesus Christ. Remember, folks, before we were saved, the Bible says we were enemies of God. Right now, he says, we have peace with God. It's a fact Right now, we possess a peace with God because of Jesus Christ. The moment we placed our faith in Christ, or as it says in verse 1, the moment we were justified by faith, we established a peace with God. Now, something to remember, and this is very important, is that means this is not a subjective peace. This is not a peace based on how you feel. This is not a peace upon one moment in one day, okay? This is not based on the mood that I'm in. We all have times when we may not feel close to God. We may not feel peace with God, but it's there, right? We have a peace with the Almighty because of Jesus Christ. It doesn't go anywhere, see? Our feelings don't change. That is an established fact because it's a present possession right now. We are at peace with God. As I read earlier, Jesus Christ redeemed us. Remember what redeemed? He paid the price for us, right? He paid the price for our sin, and this is very important, folks, in full. In full. Remember on the cross? Remember that Greek word, tetelestai? We know it as it is finished. It's one word. It means the debt has been paid in full. That's what that means, okay? That's very important, folks. All of that still remains, he's saying. God, at that very moment, when Christ died on the cross, God was propitiated. You'll see that in some of your Bibles. God was propitiated, simply meaning God was satisfied with what Christ did for our sin. It's as if he's saying, you know what? I will accept his death. For your sin. God was propitiated. He was satisfied. Folks, guess what? None of that changes. None of that has been taken away. None of that has been lost or will be lost. Once again, our hope that peace is a present possession. It ain't going anywhere. We will always have it. See? For the one who has truly been justified, there is no sin that is unforgiven. It's not like you can fail God tomorrow and all of a sudden, well, yeah, you used to have peace with God. Praise God that that's not the case. There is no sin that is unforgiven. All of it, for the believer in Christ, it has been atoned for. And this is why it is an objective peace. We presently have it. It is not going anywhere. It's not based on our feelings. Because we base the word peace on our feelings. I'm really at peace with this. This is not about how you feel. It's about what Christ did, which brings us together with Almighty God 
We're not an enemy any longer. We're at peace. Think of one of the fruit of the Spirit is what? Peace. Right? And you know why? It's because we know that it's not based on anything I've ever done. It's based on what he did for me. That's why we have peace. Trust me, folks, you wouldn't have subjective peace or objective peace if you thought your salvation was based on what you can do. (laughs) You'd never be at peace. But it's based upon what he did. And that's why true peace rests in Jesus Christ. Now, taking that one step further, look at the very first part of verse 2. He says, through, now he's talking about, notice the end of verse 1. He mentions the Lord Jesus Christ. And now he says, through whom, through Christ, we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. Now, I've looked this verse up in probably 15 different translations. No matter how you want to read it, no matter how you want to look at it, it's a little bit tough to grasp Okay, just because of how it's phrased. Okay, But keep this in mind. The primary point in this thought is the mediation of Jesus Christ. Okay, I briefly mentioned it a little bit in the first verse, but it's about the mediation of Jesus Christ. We all know what mediation means. It means there is a third party that is involved between two others, right? We know what that is. In this context, in what we're reading right now, it's actually very simple. Matter of fact, I'm going to read 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, and it'll explain it for us. Many of you know this verse. For there is one God, and there's one mediator between God and man. And that is the man, Christ Jesus. There's that mediation, isn't it? Right? Once again, there's that connection. How does man connect or have a relationship with Almighty God? He says there's only one person, and that is Jesus Christ. And so in verse 1, he says it is through him that we have peace with God. Here in verse 2, once again, it is through him, those are important words, that we have access, he says. We have access to this grace. Right? Once again, it's all placed on the shoulders of Christ. It's because of him we have access to this grace. Now, if you're reading that, you're, you're kind of your first thought is, okay, but what is this grace? Where the word grace, charis, in the Greek, it means a gift. Right? It just means a gift. Okay? Well, the word grace is used in various ways throughout scriptures. But I would say, when you keep in the context, just back up to verse 1, and I believe that grace is the grace of justification, as he just got through talking about. That grace, or if you will, that gift, is having a relationship with God. Because we have been justified, which means we have now been declared righteous, we have a relationship with God. We have that now, forgiven of our sins, redeemed by the blood of Christ. It is that grace is justification. And Paul says, it is that grace on which we stand. This grace on which we now stand. For all believers, Jew, Gentile, I don't care where you're from, I don't care what language you speak. Okay? 
He says it is, it, is, it, is, it is that justification we be declared righteous and it allows us to stand before God. That allows us, you and me, we can stand before God because of the finished work of Jesus Christ. Once again, there's that mediation. It's all in Christ, see? Now, with all that being said, there's one more thing that I want to point out. Here in verse 2, Paul says, we have gained access by faith. We have gained access by faith. Now, if you have the New American Standard, it uses the word introduction. It doesn't use the word access, okay? But the key is that we have gained access by faith. Now, that Greek word for access, it's only used three times throughout the entire New Testament. Besides being translated is having access, it means to bring near. It means to approach Right? We all understand what that means. So he's saying here, this relationship uh, that we have allows us access. It allows us to approach Almighty God. Okay? There's some great benefits that we have right now on this earth, folks. We, I know we just think of heaven. But we have access to Almighty God. We can actually approach Him, which we do. I hope we do. Now, keep in mind, folks, this is something that was really foreign to the Jewish person. Okay? Think of the temple, for example, right? The Gentiles could only get so close to the presence of God. Remember, the presence of God revolved around the Holy of Holies, right? Gentiles could only get so close. The court of the Gentiles, it was the final outside area there of the wall. That was as close as they could get, okay? There was also the court of the women. Women were kind of demeaned in that culture. And that was only just a little bit closer to the presence of God than the Gentiles. Okay? From there, just a little bit closer to the presence of God would be the men and the priests. And then finally, as you all know, it was only the high priest who once a year could actually go into the Holy of Holies where represented, if you will, um, the holiness of God, the presence of God. But now, through the death of Jesus Christ and placing our faith in him, all believers have access to the Father. There isn't like, okay, you Gentiles are way down here. Women are a little bit closer. Maybe the men and the priests. And okay, if you're the high priest, you're the man. It doesn't, that's not the way it is anymore now. We all have access equally to the Father. Matter of fact, Ephesians 2 is pretty clear. Ephesians 2, verse 18, it simply says, through him, through Jesus, we both, meaning Jew and Gentile, have access to the Father by one Spirit. One chapter later, Ephesians 3, verse 12, in him, in Christ, and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. Holy smokes, even the high priest couldn't do that. He might die. Remember they put little bells on his thing there? And they had to put a rope to him in case he died. If you stop hearing those bells, you pull the rope because he's dead. <laughs> pull him out because you ain't going into the Holy of Holies because you're going to die too. 
Even he couldn't have that. He says we can approach him with freedom and confidence. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16. We can approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in time of need. Is that where you go? Do you go to God? You have something that, that no unbeliever has on this planet or has ever had. You have access to God Almighty. Do you use that? Do you go before God? When you're struggling, when you're in time of need, when there's an issue, do you say, you know what, I need, I, I need to stop right now and pray. Maybe I need to, at my lunchtime, I need, I'm at work, I need to open the word of God. Do you take that opportunity when there's that going on in your life? Not everybody has that blessing to be able to do that, where God says, come, I want, it, I, I want you to come. I'm ready to hear. I want to hear what you have to say. And you can actually, God will hear you. He says, I'm ready. What do you have to say? Now, if you need a visual, some people are visual, if you need a visual of all this, you can kind of think of the temple and think of the Holy of Holies. You guys remember the Holy of Holies has a curtain there, doesn't it? Remember it had that curtain. It wasn't just wide open, right? That's where the Ark of the Covenant was. At a curtain that surrounded it. Well, in Matthew chapter 27, verse 51, it tells us that the very moment that Jesus died, the earth shook, the rocks split. And it says, at that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Folks, through his sacrifice, now that, that the Holy of Holies is wide open now when Jesus died. That's what that's saying. Through his sacrifice, access to the Father is open to anyone who places their trust in Jesus Christ. That barrier, or that was symbolized by that curtain, it's gone. It's gone. The access to God is wide open for us. The second Christ died, because when he died, he atoned for the sins. That's why he said, it is finished. It's finished. One more verse, Hebrews 10, verses 19 through 22. It says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, opened for us through the curtain that is his body, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, what does he say? Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith. He's simply saying, because we have this, because through Christ that, that curtain is torn open, which is now his body, that, that was the whole point. As if the, what the great high priest has, we now have access to all of it. Use that. He's saying, use that. There's your opportunity Draw near to God, he says, in full assurance and of faith. And now the second half of verse 2, I told you I'd never get through verse 5, but now the second half of verse 2, this is an, another result of our faith in Christ. It says, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. As believers as those who have a confidence, right? As a believer in Christ, you have a confidence. You have a surety of eternal life. He says, we rejoice now. 
we can rejoice right now. We can look forward to right now to the day when we will share in God's glory. That's amazing. Obviously, that's undeserving. There's no pride there. None of us deserve to be in the presence of God. But because of Jesus Christ, we can actually firmly look forward to that. Once again, we have the surety that it's going to happen. Believe it or not, we will share in the glory of God. Now, for those out there, our brothers and sisters in Christ, who believe that you can lose your salvation, who think that you can be saved one day, and then, of course, it would be gone the next, that would be difficult to have that assurity. That would be difficult to rejoice, right? You don't, you don't know. There's, there's, there's no security in that. And, of course, the reason for that is, is because in their mind, salvation is based on man. It's based on themselves, okay? They're saved by grace, but because they believe it can be lost, that means it's kept by works, for those of us who understand that we are saved by grace and we are kept by grace. Do we get that? We're saved by grace and we're kept by grace. In other words, salvation in its totality is a work of God. And we can wake up every single day knowing that God will never leave us nor forsake us. We persevere because it's God who allows that and puts that in our lives. Matter of fact, one of the scriptures I love so much is Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. It starts off with those simple words, having believed, right? That's where it starts, right? Our faith in Christ. Having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, guess what? He says he is a deposit, and I love this word, guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession. Until the time when God brings you home, that inheritance is guaranteed because he says, I gave you my Holy Spirit. Guaranteed. No, that doesn't mean you can go out and live in sin. Paul talks about that. Should you continue in sin that grace may increase? No. And I don't think a true believer would want to do that anyway. But it's a great verse to talk about the fact that we can have that, that assurity. We can, we can rejoice knowing that we will be in the glory of God because Christ says you are saved now and I'm guaranteeing you an eternal inheritance. I think of, of Philippians chapter 1 Verse 6, many of you know this. It says, he who began a good work in you, that's God, he's he, he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion. Now that good work, okay, their salvation, meaning the Philippians, their salvation and, the, and their subsequent uh, uh, changed lives, Paul himself, he says, was a recipient of that, okay, he has seen firsthand and he had benefited from the work that God had done in the lives of those Philippians, okay? What he does now in that verse is simply tell them straight up, God started this and it is God who will finish it. He who began it, he says, will complete it. God did not start this work in the hearts of these people saying, Boy, I'm really hoping you hang in there. 
I did a great work for you by saving you. I just, boy, I hope you make it till the end. As, as if God is saying, all right, guys, I got the ball rolling. It's up to you now. That would be a bummer. Because I believe if that was the case, all of us would fail. Every one of us. I, I, I believe, as many of you know, if it was possible for us to lose our salvation, we would. We are depraved human beings. We are sinful human beings. We would in a heartbeat. That's who we are deep down. Praise God that Christ changed our lives. Paul actually spoke against this whole thing in writing to the Galatians. Remember, the Galatians were under the influence of false teachers, the Judaizers. Paul says in chapter 3, verse 3 in Galatians, he says, Are you so foolish? After beginning with the Spirit, are you now trying to attain your goal by human effort? Really? Right? Are you so foolish? That's a, that's a tough statement, see? It's foolish, he's saying, to think that God started this and to somehow think that he's not going to finish it. It's like I said, can you imagine God saying, okay, I, I got the ball rolling, you're saved now, but from here on out, it's up to you. I wish you the best of luck. <laughs> that would be horrible. Folks, I say all of this because we can know with assurance our eternal destiny, okay? And therefore, as verse 2 tells us, therefore, we can rejoice in the day that we will share in the glory of God. That is a benefit, he's saying, to now. Peace with God, and we can rejoice that we're going to be there. Because of that peace with God, because of that right relationship, we can rejoice right now, today, on this earth, that we will one day share with him, be with him, and share in his glory. Now, folks, because you and I are, are finite beings, it's impossible for us to really grasp the glory of God. We really just cannot grasp the glory of God. But we can know that it will be ours one day. I can't tell you all about it because my mind doesn't go as far as the glory of God, the majesty of Almighty God. But I can tell you that we too will be there and it will be ours one day. We can rejoice in that, he says. Matter of fact, I'll close with this. In Romans, um, in Romans 8, verse 29. For those that God foreknew, what did he do? He also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of of his son. One day, folks, we will be conformed to the likeness of Christ, that we might be the firstborn among many brothers. Verse 30, those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. It's not something we're going to, boy, I hope God glorifies me. Well, we know we don't deserve it, but he tells us those he justified are those he will sanctify and are those he will glorify. Once again, the work is on him. That's why we have peace. That's why we can rejoice. It's his goodness. The debt's been paid. He's changing our lives. He's justified us. It's an amazing thing. Let's pray, everybody. 
Father, thank you, Lord, even though we just going through these couple verses this morning, we're grateful, Lord, that we can look to you and know that there's not one single solitary thing we can do to earn our salvation. That was important for these Jews here to remember, but it's also important today. We live in a world where people believe they're good enough. They live good enough. I'm, I'm better than the next guy, that somehow I can gain heaven. But Lord, we know that through the scriptures, through Romans chapter 1, Romans chapter 2 and 3, that we're not. We're depraved individuals. We're sinful. There's no one righteous, not even one. Our throats are open graves. But he says here, Lord, we have access to you because of Christ. He is our mediator. Between us and you, Lord, we can only come before you. We can only have a relationship with you because of what Jesus Christ has done. There is no other way. The law doesn't cut it. Works doesn't cut it. Religion doesn't cut it. It's Christ and Christ alone. We thank you, Lord, that we can rejoice in that. Because, Lord, if you left it up to ourselves, I think we would be worried every single day not knowing what would happen till the day we die. And then, sadly, we would be bound for hell because our sins would not be forgiven. Lord, I hope and pray that everybody understands in this room that only one of two things will happen one day. We will either pay for our own sins in hell or Christ will pay for them on the cross. That's it. There's no other option. And I hope that we all understand that it is to place our faith, our trust in the finished work of Christ that he paid for, knowing that we cannot do it ourselves. So we can not only rejoice in what there will be one day, but we can rejoice that right now we can have a peace with you. We can see how you personally change our lives while we're on this earth to be new creations. I know for myself and many others, we are not who we used to be, but it's because of Christ. Thank you for that surety. In Jesus' name, amen.